Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. I'm here with JJ French, founder of the mega rock group Twisted Sister that I grew up with. How are you doing, Jay? Oh, you know, it's uh, not snowing yet in New York. <laughs> I'm good. Jay, I was like 16 years old when uh, We're Not Going to Take It came out on MTV. And that like basically changed the lives of every kid watching MTV. And I was from New Jersey. You were like, you guys defined New Jersey metal at the time. Wow. Um, uh, well, there wasn't really any metal out of Jersey, so that's kind of, yeah, I guess we were. Well, well Bon Jovi, Anthrax, Skid Row? Well, I, I, first of all, we, we preceded those bands by several years. Right. We really, really did. Bon Jovi used to come see us in the bars, and so did the guys in Anthrax. And we're older than those guys. And so we had already established ourselves as a band on the bar circuit. They came in a, a little afterwards. And, uh, but I guess we're always called, we're considered a Long Island band, although I think we were just equally a tri-state area metal band. But what we were not under any circumstances was a West Coast LA hair band. That right. is what we were and are absolutely not. We have nothing in common with those bands. Um, it's really an interesting thing. We're the, we're, we are the probably the sole uh, possessors of that of that kind of title uh, because uh, we, you know it's such a different. It's, it's a, it was such a different scene. The bands that you mentioned all came through a really active bar scene and uh, learned their craft in the bars for years and years and years and years. Tolling away, we certainly did, and that's what separated us, I think, from. In fact, in fact, we don't even consider ourselves an 80s metal band. We consider ourselves a 70s bar band that made it in the 80s. Well, I, I kind of want to get into that. So you wrote in an article that your defining moment was, um, I guess it was February 9th, 1964, the Beatles on the Ed Sul Sullivan Show for the first time in the U.S. Set an audience of 73 million people watched, and you decided at the age of 11 you wanted to be a rock star. And then essentially 20 years later, almost to the day, you had your, your, the first mega hit. Yeah. And, and, you know, I wonder about the music business in general. Like, you can't, like, take the Beatles. 
There's no TV shows anymore that has an, have an audience. You know, n- nobody has an audience of 73 million anymore. Like, to, and you guys kind of rode the beginnings of MTV to sort of really break out. Like, the, the We're Not Gonna Take It video was probably one of the most played videos of that year. Uh, you know, it seems like there's, there's no room for the, the mega bands anymore in, in today's day. I think people are always looking for these grand statements, uh, these grand sociological observations on what separates eras. But understand this, Elvis became a star without any of that either, really. You know, yeah. TV was in its infancy and Elvis just had a message and a, and a, and, and a spark that exploded around the world. I mean, if you really want to look at it, what's even crazier is Elvis is the biggest worldwide star that was ever produced, and yet he never played outside the United States. Do you know that? I didn't know that. Yeah, he never played because his manager was an illegal alien. Uh, I didn't know that either. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tom, uh, his his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, he was actually Swedish. He was an illegal alien, and he was afraid if he ever left the country, he would never be let back in. So, consequently, Elvis never played outside the United States, and he became one of the biggest stars in the world never setting foot outside the United States, which is actually mind-blowing if you think about that one. Yeah, that's interesting. So so, so uh, I guess you first started Twister, Twisted Sister in 1973 or the early 70s, mm-hmm. and then what kind of imp- – what always impresses me with many of the guests on this show is literally how long and how persistent they were with their art before kind of breaking out in the traditional sense. Like how long did it take before you felt you were you were a known quantity? It took 10 full years. 10 full years. And so – In fact, there's a movie documentary out. Um, I, I – I can't use profanity. Am I correct? No, no, you can use it. Go ahead. It, okay, it just well, came a out. Documentary that just came out. It was just debuted at the um, at the Independent Documentary Film Festival in Amsterdam called Twisted Fucking Sister, and it's the story of the ten year struggle to get a record deal. So, when people really say to me, you know, uh, where do you put yourself in the pantheon of great bands? And I say, well, look, you know, if you look at the if you look at the uh, Mount Rushmore of greatness, you have the Beatles, the Stones, who's that Floyd Queen, you know. ACDC Sabbath, I, this is like the Mount Rushmore. I said the difference between us and all of them, except for the Beatles, is they were all signed within probably six months of, of, of starting up, maybe a year, tops. Beatles, uh, as everyone knows, went to Hamburg for a couple of years and signed it, woodshedded there. But we um, spent 10 years toiling away. And it wasn't until we had played about 6,000 shows that we were signed, which is why the band was so ready for worldwide success. We already been down that road a million times. Nothing was particularly surprising. This is why today the band plays the biggest festivals in the world through crowds of up to 80 or 90,000 people without even thinking twice about it because we are professionals. We've done it for years and years and years. We've played 9,000 shows as a band. Um, and the early days was just struggle. It was constant defeat constant rejection you know all those wonderful stories that make for great books and great articles uh, from the business standpoint of how do you survive how do you continue to come back how do you reinvent you know we are the the poster children for rock bands who who want to know how to survive but in a much bigger picture james it's 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 anybody you want to succeed in business or in life you take gigantic risks you take gigantic crashes and the and the real key is that you come back from them and don't let them kill you, no matter how bad they are. And in our case, they were historically bad. 
Well, well, let me ask you about that. Like, A, how do you know when something is so bad? You know what? I'm just going to choose a different career. Like, I'll be a, a, a music manager or an A&R guy or a producer or whatever. A- and, you know, what were some of the setbacks during those 10 years? Well, that's a great question. Because I've asked myself many times, had Twisted Sister decided at any point along the way, up until the point that we got signed to Atlantic Records, and we finally said, you know what, it's over, it's over, it's over, you and I would not be on this phone today talking about Twisted Sister. It could have happened a number of times, but we were validated in what we were and who we were by the fan base that we had. So what you really need is a pragmatic view of what your goal really is. You know, we didn't stick together for 10 years because all we did was fail. I mean, we were in a monstrously successful live performing act in the tri-state area that just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So even though our attempts to become worldwide, world famous through a record deal failed, we could lick our wounds by playing a show to 5,000 people on a given night, right? So that's, that's part of the reason why you continue on. If you just suck completely at everything you do and you spend 10 years at it and you get no success, I really think, yeah, it's time to change careers. Why even wait 10 years? But, but you, because, you, were, you were selling out enough, though, that you were putting money in your pocket, you were oh, making we were, a living. Usually successful, man. Usually, so we, we never, we always made money. Um, that was never the issue with starving. That was never our agenda. The band um, was a bar band. And back in those days, you worked six nights a week. You know, I, when I tell bands today about what our, what our pathway was back then, it's a very different pathway than today. Gasoline was 29 cents a gallon. Hotel rooms were $19.95 a night. Truck rental was $25 a week. Um, the drinking age was 18. The bars held up to 5,000 people. You could work, you could start as a bar band working six nights a week, guaranteed, make $150 a night, $900 a week. A house rental for the band was $300. Your electric bill was 10 bucks. You could, you could. So you really, I can tell you really know the numbers here. You were well, like. Because I'm, I'm the manager of the band. And right. I, and I, I review these things all the time. You know, why today the gas is $4 a gallon, hotel rooms are $300 a night, the drinking age is now 21, the amount of kids are much less, there's only 10% of the amount of clubs that they used to be back then, truck rentals $500 a week, and you're still making the same 150 bucks. how do you survive? You know, it's a different pathway. When I was 20 years old, James, I said, I looked around and said, this is my playing field. This is what I've got. This is how we're going to do it. And we always made money. And over the years, we've got, we've made more money and more money. Money was never the issue. We always made money, but what we did was the more money we made, the more money we reinvested. We kept reinvesting. We had a very hard cap as to salaries, and we just reinvested and reinvested and reinvested and reinvested. We kept on rolling the dice and rolling the dice and rolling the dice and rolling the dice. Well, what do you mean you invested? You invested in, your, in yourselves or you had outside no, investors? we invested in the show. We bought better clothes. We bought a better PA system, better light show. We, we, we were able to make demo tapes, more quality, higher quality demo tapes. Um, playing bigger rooms, getting a bigger truck to put on a bigger show. So all the money that came in was put back into the company. And I was, and I was very strict. And D was too, you know, because D is sort of the same thing I did. He was an obsessive workaholic, didn't drink, didn't smoke, neither did I. We were obsessed with success. And we said, this is the bare minimum we need to live just to pay our bills. And all the band members are going to agree because this is how it's going to be set. 
and all the money is going to go into making it better and giving us more opportunities to make it and having enough money put aside to take a break if we needed it because we were exhausted because we were working 300 nights a, a year. So I guess the point being is that given the playing field of our life, this is what the rules are. The rules are different today. You know, you talk about the Beatles having 73 million people. Well, look, Psy, you know, Gangnam Style, Psy just broke YouTube at two billion, sh- two billion sure. um, hits, right? So, but that, but that's an example where like the market chose Psy. And, and and as opposed to Ed Sullivan choosing Psy. Well, whatever it is, whatever it is, whatever filter existed or exists, the fact is that music isn't dead. Right. Music survives. And there are stars today that weren't stars five years ago. Pharrell wasn't a star five years ago. Iggy wasn't a star. These people, you know, Taylor Swift wasn't a star five years ago. They reinvent. They come back. There's massive stars. You can hate them if you want. I, that's not my, the point of what I'm saying here. Right. The point is there's always a need for music. There's always a need for creativity. So if you want it bad enough and it's part of your genome and you have to express yourself, hopefully you can express yourself with something original and that it resonates with people and that you're smart enough either through your own ability to be a business person or through somebody who will help you because a business person like a manager is nothing more than a cartilage between the creative artist and, and the world business world, right? That's really what a manager is. Uh, and, and you get it out there. But, but believe me, for every artist that gives up, there's a hundred that taking their place in two seconds. Well, the world it, isn't missing you if you call it a day. You know, it's interesting, though, uh, what you say about reinvesting in yourself, because that's obviously where your, your investment had its greatest gains. Because if you hadn't reinvest, reinvested in yourself in that way, then probably when MTV came along, you wouldn't have been ready to have the, the high quality production on your videos that you had that, that kind of outshine, outshine the, you know, all the other videos that were out there. This is true. We were much more highly evolved and developed as a band than 99% of all the bands that were signed and had like a quick hit on MTV. What, what? Way, way, way more. I describe our success like an iceberg, James. The surface, the shiny tip you see that sticks above the water is beautifully formed and underneath it is a base that is so broad, so large, so heavy and all-encompassing. And in that base lies our history. Well, you know, so so I probably first heard you because of the video, because of the video, you know, we're not going to take it. Uh, and I wonder, you know, to some extent that tapped into something that was happening in the eighties. You know, we had the kind of strict, uh, or more strict Reagan era. It was a little bit, uh, post, uh, punk and you were kind of in the face of all of that. It was, it was very rebellious. You know, it was you well, yeah, versus but, Michael Jackson on, on MTV. Yeah, but then you could say the same thing about, I mean, Dee wrote these songs, you know, when he was in, in playing in the clubs. He was just a rebellious guy who was always fighting against authority. So that would have happened at any time. Um, it wasn't, you know, it, it's always wonderful to analyze the time and go, well, it's a confluence of circumstance and coincidence that the band broke when it did. And yes, it's true. MTV was at the right place at the right time. Yes, it's true. Reagan was president. Maybe it created a certain atmosphere of oppression. Yes, it is true. All these things can be true. It is almost impossible to work this out in a vacuum and say that this was the sole reason why. Because nobody knows why anything is a hit. If they knew how to do it, it would happen every day. (laughs) And nobody knows how to do it. And sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. There was no way of knowing 30 years ago that we're not going to take it and I want to rock would be today, 2014, 
the two biggest licensed songs of the 80s. There was no way of knowing that those songs, that especially were not going to take it, would resonate to the point where it's become the battle cry for every political uh, side you can imagine, from Tea Partiers <laughs> all the way up to left wingers, and 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 governments have licensed the song uh, for their own particular use. It is astonishing to me. You, and you're you're in, you're in charge of that licensing. So what's like the what's like the craziest licensing that's come across your desk? Well, I mean, you get really wacky stuff. You know, the Tea Party is is interesting. Here's a Here's the group that, you know, sells itself off as, you know, like all American, and yet they steal more of our stuff than anybody else, and they claim total ignorance. And that's the stuff that astonishes me the most. Like, we'll bust these candidates using our songs on commercials. I'll call them up and go, what, you know, how are you using this? Oh, we thought we could use the first 20 seconds free. Or, oops, oh, sorry, how do you pay for that? Or do you supposed to pay for that? Or it's, it, it, it's never happened to any other group, but the Tea Party candidates, and I get that they want to use it because they want to, you know, they're, they're angry, but I don't care what you want to use, follow the law, right? They never follow the law, and that's the part of it that's probably the most fascinating to me. There are avenues that you have to uh, pursue to license music. You well, have to go through, a, you have to license the master, and you have to license the um, the, 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 um, the sync license and the master license. And it's, it's, there's a process by doing it. Everyone does it. Everyone has to license. And when people take the shortcut, they don't. But when you say to me, like, what? Well, products, I mean, we've been licensed by, you know, by beer companies, by banks. We've been licensed by um, uh, Hornita Tequila. Uh, we've licensed by hotel chains. We're, we're in um, more television shows, more movie trailers. It was the theme song for Betty White's Off Their Rockers. Uh, the Goldbergs had an entire episode based on We're Not Going to Take It last month. Um, this happens all the time. We license the music all the time, and there's a reason for this, because the out the the, the outlet for listening to our music is now so closed down because there are so few places that classic rock is played that you need to take advantage of every possible outlet. So we make our our music uh, very available and ubiquitous, so that everybody in the world knows it. So we travel the world, 33 countries. You go into that drumbeat, we're not going to take it in a stadium of 80,000 people, whether it's in Bolivia or whether it's in, whether it's in um, Hungary um, or whether it's in you know, Budapest or, you know, whether it's in Hungary, or whether it's in, uh, oh God, you know, France or Mexico, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Everybody knows it. It's a universal, it's a universal cry. And it's, uh, again, impossible to have foreseen this. Right. Although, although the message is one that obviously resonates, you know, the, the whole, the we're not going to take it theme is, is one that resonates with anybody who's in any form of rebellion whatsoever. True. But don't forget, it's not the only song called We're Not Going to Take It. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, the Who have a song called We're Not Going to Take It. Okay. Well, you know, on the Tommy album, and it was just a more personal view of the, of the, of the phrase We're Not Going to Take It. But the bottom line is that today it, it is the leading a song for most uh, activists uh, on, on all sides of the spectrum. That's, all that's sides really of the spectrum, funny. Uh, activist political groups. And so we, we sit here kind of astonished by its um, its universal message. So so you mentioned that there were also some incredibly difficult times. Like what were, what were, what was maybe like an inflection point where you really didn't know which direction you were going to go uh, and it was just you were just feeling really bad about it. I mean, well, we I always knew the direction. It's just that, you know, when well when the band first broke up, the very first breakup uh, over, occurred because the lead singer was drunk and he pulled a loaded gun out on the drummer and threatened to kill him. And I was 22 years old and walked in on that scene. And this was a band that had nothing to do with the band that you guys know. 
This was the early stage. This was the early version of the van. And, and uh, so what did you do? Uh, I, well, I walked into the scene and watched him pull the gun out and aim it at the drummer and threaten to kill him. And I'm, and I'm 22 years old, and he was, they were all drunk, and I didn't drink. And I had no idea about the drug scene or the alcohol scene in the context of the rock world. So I was... You know, I was horrified. I thought I was about to witness a murder. And when the drummer, when the singer threw the gun down, they got into a fist fight and the band broke up for a short period of time. I said to myself, you know, what am I going to do now? But, you know, I quickly, I quickly re reapplied myself and got replacements. And then shortly after that, the next version of the band started, the lead singer had a, I think a methamphetamine problem and he disappeared. And the, the, and then eventually the drummer, and the second guitar player stole the truck from me and the bass player and then held it for ransom. And then when we got the money, they destroyed it all. And then we were, you know, we had no money and I had to go to a city bank and convince them to let me money to buy a truck without any collateral, which I did and put another version of the band together. And that version broke up very shortly thereafter. And these are just the early stages of the band. And I kept on breaking up and kept on having problems. And I kept on questioning myself as to how much I could stand dealing with this kind of stuff. We hadn't even started making download tapes. He wasn't in the band yet. When D joined the band, um, how'd you meet D? Well, he was a singer in the club circuit. Mm -hmm. So my agent said, "You guys, if you guys aren't making any money, you need to do Led Zeppelin songs." And this guy sings Zeppelin. Mm -hmm. So we hired D, and he just sang Zeppelin, and we started to become popular. And after two years, our popularity grew immensely, and we started doing original material. That's when we started to try to get a record deal. And the record deals, as the rejection piled up. One after the other, after the other, we would make demos and we'd shop them and we'd almost get signed and then the record labels wouldn't contact us again. But you see, we were able to go back to the bars that night or the next week and play to roomfuls of people. So even though we were told that we sucked or our original sucked, we consistently were able to go back, except that there's a point in which stuff happens to you that you really start to question it. And that the time that that really happened, which was which we address in the movie, Twisted Fucking Sister was like, we finally uh, sold out the Palladium in New York City and it was going to be our big debut to, the Ameri to New York City, to all the record companies in New York. And um, we were the biggest band in the Tri-State area and that night meant everything to us and we rolled the dice and we borrowed money to put on the best light show, biggest sound company. We sold out the theater. Everything was great. It's the only unsigned band to ever sell out the Palladium in New York. Everything pointed to this was our shot. This was it. This was going to be it. The final, this was the presentation. And on the night before the show, my guitar player collapsed with an epileptic seizure. Oh, my God. And the show was canceled. And we rescheduled the show for three weeks later. Except this time, all the record labels that were going to come didn't show up, except for one. And that one label sent a surrogate who then told us that his president of the label wanted to see us, but couldn't come out to a bar, which was unfortunate because we could sell out every bar every night. We could sell limousines out. But that he wanted to see us on his lunch hour in New York City. And he wanted to see the same show that he saw at the Palladium. Well, there's only one place big enough in New York City you could do that in. It's a studio called the SIR Rehearsal Studios. Because they have a stage that's the size of Madison Square Garden that they use for bands who are going to tour to get ready. So we, re so we rented that room. And we said to him, well, what do you mean about the lights and the PA? He said, I'll pay for it. Don't worry about it. So we, we, we rented all of the lights and the PA. And... You know, this guy wanted to see us on his lunch hour on a Monday, which was so humiliating because we're a band that plays at night. The last thing we want to do was on an off day play in a lunch hour for this guy. So anyway, at noon on a Monday, he door opens up at SIR. The guy sits down, sits there. We play the whole show. When the lights go on, he's gone. And he never called us back. Oh, and my God. we finally contacted him and said, well, you know, are you going to sign the bed? He goes, no. And he said, what about the money, the $10,000? He says, I'm not going to give you that money. 
And we said, well, you said you weren't. He goes, no, no, I said if I signed you, I'd give you that money. So we got screwed there. And then we got an offer from a from a, a label called Handshake Records, and Handshake Records is about to sign us, and then they they signed three albums before us, and that they bombed, so that fell apart. Then a record label called X from Germany was going to sign us. This was another six months later, and that looked like that was really going to happen. We negotiated the deal. That was wonderful. The producer was German. He flew to the United States. He came to see us in New York. He flew out to L.A., he flew back to New York. We handed him the final demos. He handed us the contract, countersigned, gets on a plane to fly back to Germany. He has a heart attack on the plane flying back. That thing fell apart. You know, that was like, oh, my God, how's, how are you going to come back from that? And, uh, so and so how, goes, how do you come from on and on and on and on? Because I'm only scratching the surface as to the amount of, of ridiculous scenarios that kept on occurring. But yet the band was more popular than ever. So we were able we were playing for 10,000 people, 20,000 people while we're sitting here going, damn, what is it going to take? So what, what do you feel the need? What do you what did you feel you needed a label for? Like, couldn't you just um, no, essentially the answer is no, no, no. There's no way you go out of your there's no way you go out of your region without it. Now, now, today, it may be different. Today, with social media, you may be able to figure out a pathway to do this, finance it yourself, go out, sell enough stuff on tour to survive. Okay? You may, thanks to social media. In our day, there is no way. The only pathway was through a legitimate record label who had legitimate connections to legitimate radio because you want to become big. You just didn't want to be a cult band, James. The idea was not to be a cult band. Maybe it was become super famous. You know? Well, 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 what were you? So, so let's say when all these guys, like when this guy died of a heart attack on the plane, when all these labels were were turning you away, you were still making money because you were popular. But at 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 four in the morning, when you were you know staring at the ceiling at, at, at night or whatever, uh, what still? What were you afraid of? Were you afraid you were never going to be signed? There was a point. There's probably many nights, except that we always came up with a plan. What's the next plan? What's the next plan? What's the next plan? You know, I always talk to people about this whole thing about chaos, crisis, and order, and what and what what those do to you. Um, you you want to survive in a world of order where where things are are um, understandable and predictable, but unfortunately, especially in business, the biggest moves you make in business are done through chaos and crises. And that's where you kind of develop your ability to withstand and understand the sturm and drang of a business approach and how to survive it. You know, when people say to me all the time, man, you know, you guys must have developed character in the clubs. And I say to them, no, you got it all wrong. We didn't develop character. What the clubs did was exposed our character. It showed us who we were and what we were made of because we refused to take no for an answer. And even on those nights that everything was a setback, even on those nights that it seemed to be futile, you basically went through a period where you mourned the setback. It's always important to mourn it. Then you accept it. And then you reapply and you reinvent. And those were the practical rules we followed, even though there was no book that told me that, there was no Tony Robbins, there was no motivational speaker I'd heard yet. There was nothing. It was just how we survived. So when I look back at the tools we use to move from point A to point B, they are, in fact, absolute inscribed in stone business moves. But they were not dictated to us at the time by some book. It was just through our own blind ability and street sense 
to do it, which is why I'm now a motivational speaker, why I write a column for Inc. Magazine. And, and, and But you also, there's also a, a, a leadership style here in the sense that you kept the band together, too. I mean, nobody during this period, let's say from 1976 through 1984, nobody left the band. Right. Well, no, a lot of people left the band. We fired a ton of people. I mean, the band, the band that you that you know is the 11th version of the band. <laughs> we went through tons of people. I mean, we fired them for drug and alcohol abuse mostly. But uh, but over you and, and D over and over again. But once I hired D, well, for, it's the core of the band: me, D, and Eddie. I brought Eddie on in 1985 and D on ni- 1975 and D on 1976. So me, D, and Eddie have been standing shoulder to shoulder since basically 19, since February 76. Mendoza came in in 19 at the uh, at the very end of 78, and AJ came in in 1982. Right. So that's the core, so that's the core. So most of the core band was still formed like in the mid 70s. Yes. With AJ being the last. Yes. And so, so again, like, you know, in, in these worst moments, in these crisis moments, um, how do you, you know, it's scary to make a decision like, okay, we're going to keep going until, you know, we get, we, we get a label. We knew we weren't wrong. How did the but other bands get a label so fast? Too many fans were telling us we were right. It wasn't like two or three thousands I see. of them. So we knew we had to keep going and go, look, I'm not going to tell you that if it had gone on another 10 years, it wouldn't have ended. But we had enough, enough connectivity with enough people that were able to get us from lily pad to lily pad without giving up. But it's a tough, tough call, man. It's a really tough call. I don't know, James, if I'm brilliant or I'm just stupid. <laughs> well, you know, so smart that I knew I was going to make it or stupid, so stupid. I didn't think I should stop already. I, I think to do any kind of, Art where you're in front of thousands of people does require some, uh, if not self confidence, at least ego. You know, there there has to be an element to that to, to kind of put yourself out there so many times to so many people. Um, but at I this- hope you see the movie. The movie is the story in such detail, and you will really understand what it took. But all of those lessons I learned in that ten years, James, is, are the lessons that make my life. And and it seems like you started on those lessons earlier in the sense that, for instance, you know, why don't you, how did you get expelled from high school? Well, um, you know, this is the 60s. And uh, when I was in school, the war in Vietnam was raging, and I was an anti-war activist. And I was involved in anti-war activities, and pro-civil rights marches were happening. I was involved with those things, and I was involved with a student organization that handed out an underground newspaper in school, and I was expelled. We're handing out an event newspaper. I sued the Board of Education for violating my constitutional rights. And they settled with me because I think they were afraid of my mother, who was a very politically connected woman, who was a political consultant in the New York City area in the 60s, from every major Democratic candidate. I don't think they wanted to get her pissed off. So they said to me, what would it take to drop the lawsuit? It was a, it was a class action lawsuit. There was two other people involved. One of, the, one of them was a woman who sued Stuyvesant High School for being all male. Now it's co-ed. One was a kid who said that he thought it was unconstitutional to salute the flag, to be forced to salute the flag. And he won, which is why the kids don't salute the flag anymore in New York, as far as I know. The other was me. I just said, you know, I, I said, I have a right to hand out in the newspaper. You can't throw me out for that. So they eventually put me in a different high school. And, and that high school uh, was, when I got there, was in the throes of a major, major crisis. And I got involved with the student organization in that school. And that, unfortunately, that crisis there having to do with a racist uh, administration 
on the, how they viewed Hispanic and black students being only good for vocational colleges and not academic colleges uh, created another crisis. And uh, essentially what happened was um, on the day of the Kent State murders, which is May 4th, 1970, I said to my mom, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with education. It's never going to serve me. It's never going to serve my purpose in life. And she said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm become a rock star. She said, you have no idea what you're talking about. And I thought, well, it sounded good. You know, it sounded great. I didn't know what the hell I was saying. And I dropped out of school with two months to go. Now, I have to tell you, when you say to me, what do I say to myself at 4 o'clock in the morning, right? You yell you know, on those really bad days. I would say to myself, oh, my God, I promised my mom I'm going to be a rock star. <laughs> Even though she's dead, I got to do it. I have to do it because otherwise I'm going to look like a schmuck. But into, so, so you, so I was kind of like, I was kind of pushing myself because of this promise that I made that that was based on absolutely nothing more than just a lot of chutzpah. Although, although you picked up the guitar and you uh, auditioned for, I guess like it was an earlier version of, of Kiss, Wicked oh, Lester. I played guitar since I was 10. It's just, it just so happened that on a particular day in June of 1972, um, a mutual f- a friend of the producer of Kiss asked me if I wanted to audition for a band called Wicked Lester. It's really nothing more than a footnote. I auditioned, I went down, there was a million guys who auditioned, you know. I, I spent a couple of weeks with the band, learning the songs, and at the end of the day, they didn't pick me. But that was like one of thousands of groups that I played with. They, so it happened that we crossed paths for a couple of weeks back in 1972. And so, okay, so after after um, 1984, and you realize, okay, we just hit... Uh, worldwide status, and you know, probably labels were chasing you then. Like, what, what, what was going on? Well, um, by the time the band hit it really big, we hated each other to a level that no one could stand to be in the same room. Even you and D. Oh yeah, no, couldn't stand to be in the same room with any of them. So I was praying for the band to end at that point. At the time we hit it, I just said, you know what, this is not fun, and I hated the next five years terribly. I couldn't wait for it to end. So um, when it ended, I was thrilled. When when it finally ended in '87, I was like, "Oh, thank God!" Because this just sucks beyond belief, you know. And, and so none of those years was particularly enjoyable. Well, why did Why did you guys hate each other? Oh, it's just the way band dynamics are. Mm-hmm. I if you I guarantee you, you ask ACDC, Judas Priest, Ozzy, Cooper, Black Sabbath, any band's been together 40 years, they'll tell you the same thing. It's like a marriage, you know, and it just gets to me very uncomfortable. And um, after a while, you just resent everything and everybody, because we all push each other's buttons. So we really needed to get away from each other, which we effectively did. You know, the band ended maybe, but but here's the here's the crazy point. When you ask me about all sorts of setbacks, you know, how do you overcome these setbacks? Well, there was the setbacks of the almost murder and the setbacks of Eddie collapsing in a seizure and the setbacks of all the rejection and the setbacks of this and the setbacks of that. And then, you know, the album goes really big. Well, I think about this, by 1987, the band was bankrupt. We were sued for millions of dollars. Me and Dee were sued for millions. And I was just laughing at the absurdity of all of it. Like after all that hard work, we had, we had, we had arranged for financing through a company that we was a personal services contract that, cause we've always thought, even if we hate each other, we always, we always came up. We always won at the end. It was always going to be a winner and our album didn't work. And next thing you know, the band breaks up and they come after me and D, which I didn't expect them to do. I thought they would just write it off as a business expense, but they said, no man, we're coming after you. And we said, you gotta be kidding me. And we, we weren't talking. Me and D were not talking. It was done through our lawyers. I said, you gotta be kidding. Why don't you go after the other guys? And they went, well, it's cause you guys are the ones that have a future. So we tried to settle with them. D tried to settle in his way. I tried to settle in my way and they forced me to bankruptcy. So here I am, 
1988 in bankruptcy court downtown. And so this is, this is after you sold 20 million albums, essentially. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, here I am in bankruptcy court, and I'm going through a divorce at the same time. So from, I have nothing left, zero. I had two guitars and a subway token. That was about it. And, I, and, I, and the judge looked at me and said, um, why are you here in bankruptcy court? I know who your band is. And I said, well, because nothing is as old as yesterday's news and only yesterday's news. And I said, if you know anything about pop culture, you'll know that we're deader than a doornail. I said, uh, the band's over. I said, we gambled. We took a lot of money. We, we risked it on a big project like people do in business and fail. I said, people invest a million, 10 million, rather 100 million bucks in movies. They don't work. People invest 30 million in a Broadway show. It doesn't work. I said, we invested a lot of money in our album and tour. It bombed out. The band doesn't have the infrastructure to want to last any longer and carry on. I said, so, we're being, so I'm being forced to file. So we filed. And uh, I walked out of the bankruptcy court. But he said to me, why shouldn't I take the name from you? Because all these creditors want it. I said, they, I said, they, they want it, but it's, it's a useless name. I said, you can't take it away from me. I said, maybe in 10 years, Pride Detergent will want to use the song. We're not going to take it. And if that ever happens, I want the right to put the band together. And he said, well, that sounds like a coaching argument. Let me keep the name, which is what I, I don't know the name. Twisted, twisted. Uh, 10 years to the month of that statement to that judge, 10 years to the month, we're not going to take it. It was licensed by contracts and has a for $100,000, which began the comeback, basically, of the band. But in the interim of the 10 years, I got remarried, I had a kid, and I and I left the music industry and became a stereo salesman in the store. Just a regular old guy selling stereos. So wait, did anyone ever like walk in this store nope. and say, hey, never. you're J.J. French? Nope, never. And not only that, I have to go to houses and I, and I to set up systems, and I'd have to go to rooms, and I'd find my albums in the rooms. I never would say a word to anybody. I need to any. I don't want anyone to hear my sob story. You know, ask me questions of their business. So I kept my mouth shut. I just was a stereo salesman, minding my own business, and I uh, thought to myself, "Wow, that's kind of weird how it all wound up." Wow. So so wait. Uh, and so here I am, doing nothing, like just selling stereos, raising my kid, and um, a band that I've been working with called Seven Dust called me and asked me if I wanted to produce their album, and I had never produced a record. And uh, and I thought, eh, what the hell, I'll take a shot. You know, I, So we did a production deal, and, and uh, I signed them to my production deal, and I produced a record along with Mendoza. I never did in my life. Well, the album went platinum, and I wanted to manage the band, and I wanted making 10 times more money than I ever made in Twisted Sister, ever. You're kidding. So, like so way for, like way more, like not even in the ballpark. Like all of a sudden, here I am at the top of the world again with a super band called Seven Dust, an amazing band, and I'm making a ridiculous amount of money. And uh, and thinking, wow, life certainly is strange, man, because I stopped working in a stereo store, didn't have to. Man, Seven Dust, they signed to my production company, had their music publishing rights, and, and the money was just astonishing, like astonishing. And I'm like, wow, this is incredible. The band's great. And then my second marriage falls apart. The band fires me as a manager because... I didn't agree with their drug and alcohol policy. And those was fine by me. We parted, parted ways. And I'm sitting there around thinking, wow, well, that's interesting. I got another divorce now. And um, I'm not working with Seven Dust anymore. And then at, about a month later, there's a sister reform. <laughs> that's basically kind of, and we've been the biggest, one of the biggest draws in this conscious in the festival circuit worldwide for the last 12 years so yeah i want to i want to get to that but but what you went through when you were a stereo salesman i feel like a lot of people are going through not the exact same thing obviously but you know just this economy has kind of turned upside down in the past you know since since the financial crisis and many people I, i get emails from many people in their 40s 50s younger older 
they're they're just fired from the job that they had for 30 years. They don't know what to do. They're scared. They're hungry. Uh, maybe they just got divorced also. Like, how did you... You know, you, you say you don't want to give a sob story, but you must have sobbed at some points. I did during I this did. period. I was very upset. I, at one point, I think my daughter was two or three. I was in my living room. My wife had a very lucrative job in the music industry, but money wasn't the problem. But I thought of myself as a complete failure, and I couldn't even have—I didn't even have enough qualifications to bag groceries. I was thinking of going to a food employee in my neighborhood and bagging groceries. I, I, Could I was, you have imagined that? I was that. I was that. I was kind of despondent for about a week. Not even. I, I, I was really bummed out. I kept saying to myself, "This can't end like this because I've done too much." I've, you know, I, you know, I was, I was a drug addict as a as a teenager, and I and I stopped all the drugs myself without without being without dying, without being arrested. I was a crazy, wild kind of, I was a pot dealer. I mean, I was like a high school revolutionary radical, you know, all that stuff. And I got away with all of it and didn't die from heroin, which I could have died. I didn't die from acid overdose. I could have, I could have been arrested 20 times. I didn't, I could have, I was almost murdered six times. I got, and, and I, and I thought to myself, man, did I come through all of that? Plus I ran two marathons while the band was becoming one of the biggest bands on earth. Did I come through all of that just to wind up bagging groceries at, at Food Emporium. So uh, as, as corny as it sounds, my wife at the time gave me the book, Wake Up the Sleeping Giant. I think it was uh, Tony Robbins, right? And I think he said, I read like the first chapter or something. He said, you know what? He said, just go back to the beginning of whatever made you whatever you were and start writing a list of 10 things you're going to do today and just do one of them. It really was profound to me. And I realized that what he was saying to me, all the things I was used to do, but just forgot that I did them subconsciously. So I started to just think about a system and a process by which I could rebuild myself. And don't forget, I've had a great last 12 years, but my nadir, my, my economic crisis was from 1994, 95 to 2000. Now that was uh, 2001. That was the time that the band was broken up. Nobody was talking and I was working the stereo salesman. Uh, but before Seven Dust, Seven Dust came in around 97. So I mean, there was like a three-year period. So the bottom line is, is I needed a job. And I realized I needed to get a job. And I knew where I could get a job. The question was, could I let my ego sublimate itself enough to get that job? Did anyone... That was really the key. So I... Could I walk in that stereo store and say to the person, I'll take the job? Because I'm J.J. French, Twisted Sister. What, <laughs> am I, what, what am I doing? Walk into a stereo store, I'll take a job as a salesman. I mean, did any did any customer kind of like uh, doubt yeah, your opinion on the yeah. stereo system? Oh, value my opinion on stereos? No, did any customer come in and say, uh, uh, I'm going to choose this stereo, not the one you're suggesting? Like, did anyone? No, I was, no, no, not really. I mean, it's a very high-end stereo. It was a very high-end audio store. It wasn't like uh, selling receivers. We sold uh, we sold stereos that cost a half a million dollars. Huh. And it's and it's a hobby of mine. I've been into the stuff for years. I know all the stuff. So we, we played a clientele that was older and just spend stupid amount of money on cables like 20,000 bucks a speaker wire. Don't even get into where I'm at with that stuff. The point <laughs> is, I know the stuff, I know how to sell it. And um, if you don't want to buy it from me, that's one thing. But, you know, there's very few stores that sell the kind of crazy stuff that we used to sell. And that's sort of the bottom line is to get myself to walk into that store that first day to work and actually say to myself, I'm a straight. Because how many times have I had a straight job in my life? I worked in a hardware store when I was 17 because my mother freaking out that I was selling pot and I wasn't, you know, I was a high school dropout. So I got a job as a, in a hardware store. 
And, uh, and by the way, you know, when I was 20, I went completely straight. I went completely flipped my life completely upside down. I went from being like an uber druggy, crazy pot dealer to like completely anti-drug and it remains so to this day. Because basically my girlfriend, best friend all became junkies. Everyone was dying around me. By the time I was 20, I was losing all my friends to heroin overdoses or death by uh, misadventure, which scared me straight completely. And that's why, and when I met Dee, he was totally straight. And that's why we became obsessive in our desire to succeed and not have anything stand in our way. I don't find drugs and alcohol to be of any value in any way to anybody for anything at all. Hate, hate the drug scene, and uh, it's got no space in rock and roll, but it's a completely antithetical to rock and roll, and me telling you that I joined a band to get away from the drug scene, right? But in fact, I joined Twisted Sister in New Jersey because nobody knew me. I didn't have anything to lift. They didn't know about my high school revolutionary past. They didn't know about my pot dealing past. They didn't know about my drug-taking past. They just knew me as some guy who wanted to play David Bowie song. So I was able to totally reinvent myself, and that, James, is probably the key. How often can you reinvent yourself? All right, so now through this whole securitist conversation that we're having, that's the key for me. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, it's reinvention, but it's also reinventing in difficult circumstances. So, so kind of, you know, you had difficult situations, the drug situation, the band constantly um, reforming or breaking up, and then not being able to find a label, then the bankruptcy, then um, taking a quote-unquote regular job. It's, it's not just reinvention. It's sort of like deciding, okay, this is a difficult problem in front of me, and I'm going to solve it, and these things cycle. Well, do you think, James, but if you asked anybody, did you ever reinvent yourself? The last thing they would tell you is they reinvented themselves and everything was going well. Um, no. <laughs> so then you've answered your own question. So you only reinvent yourself when confronted with something like pretty, pretty rough. Right, but I think I think a lot of people reinvent themselves by staying in that stereo store and never and never getting out of there, or 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 just not really pursuing the dream in the first place. I I can't speak to. I don't know. I only speak for me. You know, people say to me to me all the time, "You've been blessed with this crazy life, and you've done all these things." And I go, "I don't know. You really think I'm blessed?" Listen. I sit sometimes in my in my office and I have these 37 golden platinum albums on my wall. You know, I'm looking at them and going, if you took a photo of those 37 golden platinum albums, right, and you took a photo of that and you showed that to me when I was 20 and you said, hey, man, that's going to be your office like in 40 years, right? I'd be going, wow, holy shit, whoa, I'm like a superstar. I'm a billionaire. And then you go, well, except this is what you went through to get those 40 albums, get those albums. I may go, oh, wait a minute. Hold on. I don't know if I can handle that. I really don't know if I can handle that. The price one pays for their life is enormous. Well, if you, I mean, this is kind of a, a typical question. I almost hate asking it, but if you could change one thing from your 20s, what would it be? And, and, and absolutely, uh, uh, absolutely. other than the answer, absolutely nothing. No, absolutely nothing. <laughs> okay, if you were going to give an advice to somebody in their 20s who was in a similar situation to you, um, well, wait, you're talking about a similar situation as a 20-year-old? A 25-year-old, say. Well, okay, Th that's a loaded question because it depends on the kind of person that person is. Number one, are we talking about a mentally stable person or are we talking to somebody who has a borderline behavioral problem? Seriously. Seriously, because if you have a borderline behavioral problem, the first thing you got to do is straighten out your behavioral problem. All right, that's, that's my kind of – because – 
Because James, I'm not that kind of guy. I'm a really practical business guy. I've always had a sense of humor and a really like pr- pretty, pretty straightforward sense of who I am and what I am and never was so presumptuous as to think I'm great. All right. So therefore I, me giving advice to somebody is tough in that unless you are me, you may listen to my advice. You may take something out of it. Or you may not, you know, I went to see uh, many years ago, a, uh, an, a, an Indian guru you may have heard about, he was put, passing himself off back in the in the 60s as the perfect master, 13-year-old perfect master. He was the first of the guru, wave of gurus following Maharishi, you know, the guy who had the Beatles. Yes. Followed the Maharishi. And, uh, you know, and I was very skeptical because I was selling pot at the time, and most of the people I was selling to went to see this guy, and I said, great, I'm going to lose these customers. So I'm going to go see what this whole shtick is about. And I went to see him, and he said something which has always stuck in my mind. And he says, you know, in India, in my country, we have a guru on every corner. <laughs> and he goes, find the one that works for you. And I went, well, that's a practical thing to say, right? He's not saying, follow me, you're going to burn in hell. He's saying, if I don't work for you, go somewhere else. So my advice to someone 25 is, I'll give you advice. But whether or not that advice applies to you, I have no idea. I don't. I can give you general views of what I do, general reasons of how I succeeded, uh, like I do in my column in Inc. Magazine, which you've read, right? You've read these yes. columns, I'm assuming. Yeah. Which is why we're on the phone, correct? Right. So, okay. So what I do in those columns, the difference between my column, James, and all the other columns are I'm not telling you it's a one-size-fits-all. I can't be everything to everybody, but I can be everything to somebody. Do you know the difference? Do you understand what I'm saying? You know, I... I I think you're saying also that you select the people that you can be something to. Well, they select me. Well, or, or, or vice versa. Like, look at how you and D met. You know, you were both anti the drug and alcohol thing. And that's what put together this partnership that lasted for 11 years and well, lasted, sold 20 million lasted, albums. It lasted almost 40 at this point. Hmm. You know, I mean, that partnership today exists. And it's been it's a partnership that exists. It's been going on for 40 years. But but at the same time, for instance, and you've said this, you wouldn't necessarily want to work with with uh, your or be a manager to somebody who you couldn't uh, get along with. Like you've mentioned, let's say Rod Stewart or Frank Sinatra. Um, you know, you you wanted to work with people that you felt were on the same wavelength as you. Yes. And so that's that that is part of your advice. And the, and the other part of your advice is how you said you know take it back to the beginning, write ten things down you want to do. And, and go ahead and do one of them. So that's another piece of, of very valuable advice for people going through uh, kind of the reinvention crisis. Well, my next article in Inc., which is coming out Monday, is about the single greatest piece of advice I was ever given by anybody. And I said if there was an 11th commandment, Moses left the mountain about two minutes before God told him, oh, by the way, there's one more thing. Put on that stone. And I will tell you what that is. So you can... You can just flash forward to the article. Yes. But it's, it's do what you say you're going to do. If you're going to do, if something, if someone asks you to do something and you say you're going to do it, then do it. There's a discipline to following through with your word, which I think is one of the most important disciplines you will ever learn. And I learned it in business from a guy named Ronnie Altman who had a lighting company and we didn't have much money and we couldn't afford lighting gear. And he fronted the band an enormous lighting rig for very, very little rental money. And he didn't know me from Adam. He just knew I was a nice guy. And this was early on in the bar scene. And um, he said to me, I'm going to, because I hear you're a nice guy, I'm going to give you this 
and he owned one of the biggest lighting companies in the world, Altman Stage Lighting. He said, I hear you're a good guy and you don't have $10,000, so I'm going to give you this lighting rig and so I'm going to rent it to you for 25 bucks a week. You can afford that, right? I said, yeah. He said, you make sure you give me the 25 bucks every week. I don't care if you drive it, bring it here to me personally, put it in the mail, or send it by carrier pigeon. But you're going to give me that 25 bucks every week. He said, if you fail to give me the 25 bucks any given week, understand this. I don't care about that $10,000. It means nothing to me. And neither the lights I'm giving you. But you've lost a great, great business contact. And I never forgot those words. I've never forgotten that commitment. And I've never forgotten what my word meant. And no matter how big or how small, when you say you're going to do something, do it. That's the discipline of life. And I think in business, it's one of the most important business disciplines you can ever have. Deliver on time. Have your word mean something. Because without it, you got nothing. As old-fashioned as that may be, that's all I believe. So, 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 and that's great advice. I, I, I definitely recommend people should read all of your ink articles. Like you've got, you've got a, a book in there as well. I don't know. Um, I mean, you, you can make a book out of those. I don't know if that's in your, in your plans, but they're, they're great. Yes, absolutely. And so, so let me ask you this. So then the, the band got back together. Was everybody in the band back together? Like, I don't think you, you didn't, you, it was, it was mostly just you back together. Uh, no, the whole band got back together. The whole the reason why the band has such enormous value is because um, it's the original lineup. There are very few bands with the original lineup touring the world today. Uh, Aerosmith, Motley, Us, Rush, and ZZ Top. Otherwise, you always get a replacement drummer, replacement this, replacement that. But with Twisted, you get the five guys. That's the enormous value of the band. And your 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 average audience is about sixty thousand per concert. Yeah, about that. It's pretty amazing, actually. Like after all these years, like it's and and who's your audience? It's people like me. It's people in there. No, who are, people not like you at all. Really? Nope. We travel. We do the biggest rock festivals around the world, and um, uh, we travel around the world in thirty-three countries to play them. And in South America, nobody's older than twenty-two. So you play soccer stadiums with kids seventeen to twenty. They were never born when you started out. They don't care about their new music. They don't care about new metal bands. They don't care about pop, nothing. They just want to see ACDC, Twisted or Kiss, Judas Priest. There's a whole, it's a whole life, life thing there, you know. And, and, unbelievable. and it's, and in, it's, in, in Europe, it's, it's 17 to, to 50. In the United States, it's 40 to 70. <laughs> And, and they they probably know you because the song. I mean, it's, like you said, the song is licensed everywhere. And you, you get paid every single time it's licensed. Yep. And, and um, uh, have you all come together around this documentary? Did you all kind of produce it together? No, we didn't produce it, but we were all cooperative with the producer. So where, where do you want um, – so obviously people still see you on tour. People are still downloading the songs and licensing it. Yep. Um, but uh, we are Twisted Fucking Sister. How can people see that? What's the well, best way for people to see that? It's making the independent film, film rounds right now. So it's not out on, on – it's not commercially available yet, but it will be. Although the tra- people can see the trailer on YouTube. It's yeah, a great trailer. on YouTube easily, yeah. Yeah, and they can find your columns in Ink Magazine, um, yeah, JJ column. French. Right, J-Y-J-Y-F-R-E-N-C-H. Plus, I have a motivational speaking career, and uh, and I pursue that. And, and that's where I'm putting my focus in, because that's really what I love doing more than anything else. Where, where have you been speaking? Just everywhere? Oh, every, everything. I've, been, I, I've spoken to a whole host of, from, from nothing but musicians to, I replaced Timothy Geithner at the Small Business uh, um, 
Small Business Investors Alliance last year. Uh, thank God, actually, for that. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I, I really is a broad based. I have a very broad base and an ability to relate to many different people because I'm a musician and I'm a rock band and a heavy metal band that's very famous that has had a huge history, which has a story of success and failures and triumph over adversity. Plus, I can speak to business communities because because my story is one of business. It's not just of, of rock. It's twisted business, really. It's, it's it's the ability to survive in a business climate, and that's a universal. universal. And, and let's face it, I wouldn't have been writing for Inc. if I didn't do that, right? And you wouldn't probably know that I could do that. Well, we don't know. Maybe you would have done something else. But one thing that's interesting is that, uh, you know, in in terms of the argument, the music business is dead. You've definitely had a strong counter argument, which is that licensing is not dead, touring is not dead. Uh, no, rock, whoa, 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 music business is not dead at all. Rock is in a very very bad position. Rock is in a very very bad position because rock has no new people coming up. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, when I was seventeen years old. And the Beatles, the Stones, the Who's Up, Floyd, and all those bands around Jimi Hendrix and the Doors, none of them were older than 27, and they were all making ridiculous music at 27. This, none of them were, not the Beatles, none of them. And when I was 17, 18, 19, the Beatles and all these other bands were no, no older than 27, 28 tops. Hmm. Well, you have no rockers at that age doing it. But you've got plenty of hip-hop artists doing it. You've got plenty of rappers doing it. You've got plenty of country artists doing it. You've got plenty of pop artists doing it. You just don't have it in rock. So rock is having a very, very, very tough time trying to reinvent itself. It's an aging uh, creative formula. It's been around 50 years, and it's really starting to show it's, 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 um, it's really long in the tooth. And will it come back? I don't know. But we have no young, we have no real young rock stars. We Whoa. have a lot of rock stars. But they're not young, and that's that's the biggest problem. What are you some of some of your favorites right now? Oh, you mean what do I listen to? The, yeah, I, like, I don't. I, I listen to what I listen to peripherally. I think Sam Smith is wonderful. I think he's great. But I, I'm a blues player. I listen to blues music constantly. So if you ask me what I listen to when I'm home, ninety nine point nine percent of the time I'm listening to blues. It's just music that makes me happy, and it's always made me happy. It's always been the music. It's been the music of my life. Well, JJ French, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Uh, I actually look, I really look forward to seeing We Are Twisted Fucking Sister. I haven't, uh, I haven't seen it obviously. And I've been really enjoying your ink articles as well. So that, like I said, I encourage people to, to read those and, uh, uh, and I can't wait for, for any other future stuff you put out. Thank you so much. Thank you for contacting me and having me on the show. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, JJ. I'll talk to you soon. Thank Bye. You. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today.